listening to Everyday Evidence, presented by the American Occupational Therapy Association, helping the occupational therapy practitioner apply evidence to practice. Here's your host, Matt Brandenburg. Today, I am joined by Mary Beth Bruder, Professor of Public Health Sciences and Health Promotion, Pediatrics, and Educational Psychology at UConn, as well as the Director of Evidence-Based Practice at the American Occupational Therapy Association, Susan Cahill. Thank you both so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having this. Thanks, Matt. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I know I work uh, pretty closely with Susan and we've been really excited to have this conversation with you, Mary Beth. You've really been a catalyst for early intervention research and best practice for 47 years, I believe, almost a half century. You direct the University of Connecticut's Center of Excellence in Developmental Disabilities Education, Research and Service. And you're the chair of the International Society of Early Intervention and the editor-in-chief of Infants and Young Children, an interdisciplinary journal in early childhood intervention. So you've got a long list of titles that are backed by years of experience um, and professionalism. I want to start off by asking you, how do you define practice in early childhood intervention? Well, that is a very broad term. So you're you're uh, pick the right word because I think that um, a lot of people might define it differently based on the context. In regard to what we're doing with young children with disabilities and their families, I refer to our law, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Improvement Act, and the fact that Part C of the law uh, serves children birth to three. And then the Part B of the law, which is the school age, actually starts at age three. So we tend to separate out preschool three to five. The term early childhood intervention is a catch-all phrase. So just like that's a big phrase, so is practice. It really can be defined as anything that we are doing to facilitate development in infants and young children who have disabilities and their families, because families are the context in which children learn. Um, you can get into much more specifics based on the discipline. So I would defer to Susan. How do you, you know, what's OT practice? A PT would define that. But what we have been um, trying to facilitate in our field from the early days of when the law passed is the fact that all of our disciplines must work together with a unified plan um, to help this child learn um, and help their family help facilitate development. I love that emphasis of collaboration. And that's one thing we're going to be discussing today, um, along with Susan, our AOTA's efforts to to promote that type of collaboration between disciplines and kind of the framework that you've been instrumental in developing, Mary Beth, to, to guide practitioners to do that. What would you say motivated you to focus many aspects of your career and scholarship on early childhood intervention and preparing providers to meet the needs? of young children and their families through this aspect of collaboration? I was very lucky to start out early um, when I was in high school working with uh, children with disabilities in a day camp uh, during the summers. And uh, when I went to college, I wanted to be a special ed teacher. And then I was lucky again to have a placement with young children uh, with disabilities at a, a school that was affiliated with our college initially and then became a public school in Burlington, Vermont, serving children birth to five and their families uh, with multiple disciplines being the team. Um, so from the very early times of looking at these little kiddos, I saw how important it was to engage families because in many cases, this is a lifelong journey for them in that their children will probably require some type of support through school and then to make sure that they have the opportunities for independent living and productivity and self-determination. And the family is key. And the time to be able to work with the family, I think, starts with the first identification that this child might have something that's delaying, that's developing, that's, I'm sorry, delaying his or her development. Um, so I was just sold. And plus, I have a lot of fun with little kiddos um, and babies. Um, I tend to tell people that, you know, those of us who work in this age group, 
we are the lucky ones. Um, it really is a fun age, and it's also an opportunity to work with families and help them establish a vision, a positive vision uh, based on their children's strengths for the rest of their life that they can carry and help that child uh, reach the milestones as well as the outcomes um, that will lead to optimum success. Not to say, um, especially as a director of a center, we are doing all kinds of things for children as they grow up into youth and then adults. Um, but I've been very lucky to work in an age group that I just, uh, you know, have, you know, a lot of respect for early development and also know that that's the time that we can make the biggest difference in families' lives as well as their children's learning. I love that. Those early years really are so formative and, and foundational and making the effort to work with and include families in the care of children really um, increases the impact that, that practitioners can have. And I think a, a similar trend is true when practitioners strive to include interprofessional collaboration and work together with other professions to um, plan and, and provide care. Um, why would you say interprofessional collaboration is so important for EI practitioners? Well, you know, little kids are little kids. It's actually easier to be concrete. The point is that children don't develop just one area of um, their, let's say, functioning at a time. And yet, when we train our professionals, we train them to be experts, usually in a narrow focus of development where they are the experts. Um, so speech pathologist, as an example, um, you know, learn an awful lot about speech and language and facilitating communication. Um, but they don't necessarily learn things that a, a occupational therapist would learn or a physical therapist. And yet, when you look at this very little child, you know that the expertise must cross domains. And we don't necessarily think it is the most efficient, effective, or really doesn't necessarily facilitate a child's functioning to have different people working with different parts of the child's overall development. So... The next best thing is to bring together people who have that expertise and have them collaborate, have them plan a unified uh, vision for this child and come up with the, the best interventions that cross domains using the expertise. We are not saying, and this is one, um, I think, misconception that happens, is that some people think this means that you have just one provider without any expertise behind them from other disciplines. I um, do believe that families can help make that decision and certainly having one person to build the relationship with a family and to integrate all the knowledge and skills from their team is helpful. But if you don't have a full cadre of professionals who have this expertise behind you, uh, you're shortchanging the child and the family. So I have been very cautious when we talk about primary provider or one provider. Um, and I say it is totally makes sense as long as the primary provider or the one provider has access to the expertise of those professionals who know different areas of development the best. I love that. That's such a, a, a meaningful and impactful thought. In when you consider it, children don't operate in in silos, and practitioners shouldn't either. Um, and 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 when there is that collaboration, it, it can truly lead to to better outcomes. Um, Susan, you've worked in school systems and and in providing care to early age children and young children and their families. How, how have you seen interprofessional collaboration be um, important and impactful in your practice? Yeah, thanks, Matt. You know, I've also done a little bit of work in, in EI, and I would say, you know, in schools, but, but certainly in early intervention when we're entering people's homes or natural settings where people where children are receiving services like in daycare settings and things like that, you're oftentimes working with one or two caregivers um, whether they're parents or uh, you know daycare workers or, or, or preschool staff, um, and and it's hard I think to have a constant stream and flow of people in and out of that environment. Um, I think also uh, sometimes uh, those important care caregivers sort of develop different relationships with different providers, um, whether they um, 
feel like they they see themselves in their providers or they have um, again just just shared some 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 hard times with them or maybe some celebrations with regards to the child's development and so sometimes we find that providers have different relationships and I think that this this model when we're able to all support each other um, and really do some excellent teaming really just helps to make sure that we're providing the best services um, to the, to the children and their families and, and the other people and in their environment. I remember working in early intervention um, with one family uh, and uh, the parent, uh, the mom tended to sort of ask me more questions about um, mobility and things like that. Because um, I think that whenever, you know, I came to see her, her and her child, that they were getting ready to be thinking about like, what was the next on their agenda in terms of activities? Uh, they were ready to get out the door. Um, and when I would speak with my PT colleague, um, she said that she got a lot of questions about feeding and positioning um, because she came around a mealtime. Right. And so it would not have been appropriate uh, for us to sort of not address the parents concerns. Right. Or to try to, to, to problem solve. Right. We needed to try to problem solve with her. Um, and so we had to do some of that teaming on our own. Right. And then bring back some solutions to the parent because the schedule was set when, when we were able to go. And that was the best time for the family. So I think sometimes having that crossover, um, all of us being able to know who we can turn to and rely on is really quite helpful. Um, and again, it's it's a big team, but I think that the parents and the caregivers um, really need to feel supported by all of us. Absolutely. And that's such a wonderful real life example. I, I, I think it's pretty well taught how important interprofessional collaboration is and, and how it can um, improve care. But it's tough to actually do it, um, you know, and when you transition from being in a classroom, learning about these things to being in the field and it, now having the responsibility to make those connections or identify other care providers and develop a relationship to begin providing interprofessional collaboration like like you did, Susan. And that's one of the reasons I really love what you've been leading and instrumental in developing, Mary Beth, at the Yukon Center for Excellence in Developmental Disabilities. Within that organization exists the Early Childhood Personnel Center, or ECPC. Can you introduce us to what the Early Childhood Personnel Center is and what its mission is? Um, this center was funded by the Office of Special Ed Programs, and we're in uh, actually going into the year 12, um, and it was focused primarily at state systems. Um, it's a systems orientation, and our focus was to build a system in each state, which is to provide technical assistance so that each state would build a comprehensive system of personnel development, CSPD for short, for all disciplines serving young children, infants and young children with disabilities and their families. The importance of a CSPD is somewhat historical in that uh, when IDEA was first passed in 1975, there was a requirement uh, at that time for states to put together a comprehensive system because we did not have enough special educators and related service providers to work in schools. This is prior to the mandate for children three to five and then uh, for birth to three. So the CSPD was a part of uh, recognizing the fact that if young children were going to have access to free appropriate public education, um, the most important piece of that would be qualified personnel who could provide that special education and related services. So our job um, under OSEP was to provide TA to bring back components of a CSPD. And the point is that you can't just focus on pre-service training without focusing on in-service supports as people are out practicing. So our CSPD has um, six components. Each is somewhat independent, but they only are successful when they work collaboratively. So for example, um, we have personnel standards and states have to adopt personnel standards either from the national organizations such as AOTA or they have to have something in their state that supports the national standards. And that isn't always the case. But the standards really set the bar for what personnel need to know and do in order to practice their discipline and help children learn. Um, 
as long as we have the standards, we know what the criteria is for those practitioners, but then we have to recruit them and keep them. And that, especially now, um, with the shortages we're seeing in all of our disciplines, is critical. But we try to recruit them early and get them into the field, which is our next component, which is the pre-service training and the pre-service programs. And we still have some um, discrepancies across programs, which is why we like to really start with that state standards, because if you have standards, then programs have to meet those standards consistently. And uh, you're not going to have one, let's say, student in a program learning one thing let's use OT as an example, and yet another person across the state learning something else as an OT. Those standards really help consolidate what we know practitioners need to know and do. But as I said before, the next component is providing uh, professional development and service because the field is is changing. We're learning new evidence about different practices all the time, and we need to be able to adapt them because we don't want kiddos not having access to the most appropriate and interventions. Then we evaluate, which is, again, something we sometimes don't do as well as we should, meaning we might, as give you an example with young children, we might have them learning something that's in part of their individualized plan, but they're not making any progress. Well, if we don't keep consistent data for progress monitoring, we don't know that, and a child could waste a lot of time. So evaluation is both the progress monitoring of the intervention as well as the overall evaluation of a plan that either is usually updated through a school year or if it's a birth to three, they have to be reviewed every six months uh, and then done uh, yearly. And then our last component, which we've been spending a lot of time on the last five years, is leadership. Developing leadership capacity in the field of practitioners. So we, we like to think that everybody has the capacity to be a leader, but they may need tools in order to do that. So that comprehensive system sounds like a lot for a state to do, but the state is currently implementing pieces of it. And all we were trying to do is make it cohesive and consistent so that all um, disciplines have access to the best training and support uh, going forward, which means that our children and our families get the best services they possibly could. And it it truly is a a wonderful program. And I think it's the connection between how a CSPD can improve those outcomes for children and families makes a lot of sense. How have you seen in the past 12 years where you've been assisting states to build these comprehensive systems of personal development, how have you seen that really help improve outcomes for infants and young children with disabilities and their families? Well, I think it's really created a vision. When we go into the states that we've worked with, we start with values, values clarification. Um, and you would think that that would be easy that we're all there for the same reasons, but we not necessarily. People see a different piece of the elephant, if you will. And so that kind of drives their values and then their day-to-day practice. So we start at the state level specifically with um, getting a values clarification of not just a leadership team, but uh, those who are partnering. And that would include folks in higher education, folks in the state system, practitioners, families, of course, sometimes policymakers, if we can. And within, once we have values, and they are different state by state, we then have that group set a vision for what they want for the young children with disabilities in their families. And then the next step is the mission. So how do we prepare practitioners? Once we get through this strategic planning beginning, it's then much easier for people to talk, not just across disciplines, which has been challenging sometimes, but across agencies, it's it's extremely challenging. And we have silos in states. So trying to help people understand that working together is so much more efficient, effective, and cost saving, provides cost savings, uh, really helps people then take take it on that, you know, when we look at outcomes for young children, we put a lot of focus on everything from having a data system to uh, having meet specifics of the law. Really, what we're trying to do when we put this uh, system together is make sure that the personnel who are the frontline people with these young children with disabilities are the most competent to do this position, to do this. We have also done under the uh, ECPC uh, a 
lot of activities that include the interdisciplinary interprofessional, which Susan participates in. And we were able to get consensus across boards of about seven uh, organizations on a set of um, four areas that every practitioner needed to be competent in. And then under that, we have indicators so that while we have specific standards for OTs and special educators and PTs, we now have this common uh, set of core competencies. And those you know, core competency areas are family-centered practices, um, evidence-based interventions, teaming and collaboration, and then professionalism and ethics. So we're kind of bringing the field together. And this wouldn't have been possible without our colleagues at AOTA um, as a perfect example, because what we're trying to do is all of us come up with our commonalities so that a family is not hearing different things from different disciplines. Uh, we've worked with a lot of higher education programs, and we've also provided leadership training um, over the past five years, specifically to our state CN619 uh, 619 folks, that is broader than just looking at a CSPD, but a CSPD is really the foundation for it. I'm loving that. It, it really sounds like a, a comprehensive framework to help practitioners provide top quality care uh, across the continuum. And, and that includes collaborating with other professions. We'll get back to our interview right after this quick message. You all know we really try to make research more consumable and applicable on everyday evidence. But did you know that just one minute of your time could help us to improve the show, improve the resources the American Occupational Therapy Association provides for practitioners, and improve the application of evidence to practice within our whole field? Please take our one-minute survey. It's only three questions, and you can find the link in this and every episode's description and support the AOTA in continued efforts to improve our podcasts and to improve the translation of research to practice. Now back to the interview. Um, you, you mentioned that the ECPC has worked uh, with AOTA um, and an additional six national organizations um, who all provide services in early childhood to create or identify these cross-disciplinary competencies. How did you really connect these organizations and and what did the collaboration between them to, to come up with this framework really look like? Well, I think start, we started, as, as all our colleagues did, with respect for each other and all the work we're trying to do. And our work with these organizations actually was preceded by a research institute that I directed um, way back when, I think in the you know 2000s, early to mid-2000s, like 2007 or 6, I can't even remember. And it was actually gave us an opportunity to look very closely at the field. Uh, it was a Personnel Preparation Policy and Practice Institute um, for um, those serving children birth to five. And one of our first activities under that was to meet with the different professional organizations to find out how they defined practice for children birth to five. You know, one of the things that our our organizations can do is they're not necessarily always tied to IDEA or special education early intervention because there are kids who are in a risk category and that means they haven't necessarily met the qualifications uh, if you want to call them that or eligibility criteria to get services in um, the IDEA programs, Part C and 619, but they still need support and services. So our first kind of uh, look at the field was to define who's getting services and how. And from there, we talked about service delivery models then under IDEA, because it really is a unifier in that uh, there's lots of professional disciplines um, listed under birth to three who can provide services and get reimbursement. And then under three to five-year-olds, it's the school-age model of special education and related services. And some families may want more than the school can provide. So we really were trying to define, again, from a family's point of view, how would you identify what other supports and options you would have for your child? 
that work took us about five years. And then when we had ECPC, we went in it with supports and partnerships with all of these organizations saying that we needed them um, to really help us examine the needs of the field, both in training and then even further in research. So, um, you know, the, the best part about this is that we have a great group of partners and collaborators who were there for all the right reasons and the same reasons. We want to do good things for young children birth to five. I love that. And and, and I love those foundational principles that you mentioned that the partnerships were built on respect and, and a common goal um, for wanting to provide that, that top quality care. I also really find it um, impressive that you took on the perspective of a family um, who might be seeking out care um, for their child and what their experience um, would be like within the system. Um, Susan, could you describe for us how the American Occupational Therapy Association identified and shared its personnel standards or competency areas with the ECPC? Sure. Some of this work that Mary Beth um, is talking about definitely predates me and my time here at AOTA as a staff member. Um, but the, the competencies were really based on sort of the, the best available evidence um, in, the, in our standards at the time. So um, standards of practice, uh, AOTA practice guidelines were included, um, systematic reviews, as well as some official documents. Um, and so those are some of the key, the key documents that really got integrated into those original competencies. I think, though, if you look at the competencies in those areas that Mary Beth mentioned, um, those four key areas of coordination and collaboration, family-centered practice, evidence-based intervention, and professionalism and ethics, that those things really stand the test of time um, and are still um, competencies and in, in, in things that people can turn to doing contemporary work in early intervention and early childhood. I love that. I love that. And those are the four there. The, these were the competencies that came through a collaboration with AOTA, um, also the American Physical Therapy Association, the American Speech Language Hearing Association, the Council of Exceptional Children, um, and the Division for Early Childhood for Early Childhood, as well as the National Association for the Education of Young Children. Um, I think that's all of the organizations that were included. Uh, what did the collaboration and the meetings and the back and forth look like to arrive at those four cross-disciplinary competencies? Um, I think we need to mention zero to three. And more recently, uh, infant mental health has been a part of it. So um, the original meetings was because we had come into this with this very long history of working um, with folks, um, was really to put down what the framework of the ECPC was going to be, which is how do we have states become better able to support their workforce who are serving children with disabilities wherever they may be. Um, as Susan mentioned, sometimes kids are in childcare, they're in the homes. Less uh, times we're hoping are segregated programs, that is children only with disabilities. We're seeing luckily more and more movement to uh, inclusive models where typical children can not only be there um, as models, but really are there to help kids learn. Um, and the group had that foundation with, you know, what was our task? And then what we did, as Susan mentioned, is we did a lot of the legwork. We went through every... Um, every type of document each of those uh, professional organizations had uh, that focused on the preparation of personnel and ongoing support. And then we did a crosswalk of what was common across them. We brought that data back a number of times. It took us two years and we met quarterly as a large group in DC um, to kind of share and then correct because sometimes, you know, as um, an AOTA was perfect as an example of this, is there were some other documents that we hadn't pulled or hadn't gotten through the first crosswalk. So then we went back and put them back in because, you know, our professional organizations are so comprehensive in 
not only documentation, but recommendations and guides for those preparing personnel with that discipline in that discipline um, that we needed to really make sure we weren't leaving anything out. And um, sometimes it was easier than others. Um, and other times we had to quantify some of the statements that were in documents. And um, those four areas that came up over and over, we really were able to group all areas under those four. And they were what we consider minimal competence across the different disciplines because as we said as I said before each discipline has their own expertise that is much more complex than even just saying uh, you know evidence-based practice and OT knows scientifically based uh, practices that let's say a special educator may never know in that discipline nor do they need to they need to be able to learn and collaborate but that's what makes an OT an OT and that's what makes a special educator a special educator So I think the respect and really the listening skills everybody had was we knew what we wanted and we wanted to um, emphasize that there is expertise in each of these disciplines. But with a family and a child, there was minimal that everybody needed to be able to do and do well. I love that. I love that. And it, it makes me consider how taking that that time or putting in a little bit more of that effort to dive into the competencies and, and areas of expertise of other professions can really facilitate that interprofessional collaboration and make it more meaningful um, because your understanding of what other professions do and how that can lead to the best provision of care really more clear. So um, that's so wonderful. What are kind of some of the indicators for each competency and and how would you recommend that educators, practitioners, students, researchers can can begin to use those um, to apply and, and improve their own practice? Well, the easy way is um, the fact that they're all on the ECPC website. And um, lots and lots of information, including indicators for the different um, uh, components of a CSPD, um, background information and papers and briefs on very specific, audience specific, I should say, audience specific resources. And um, there's a section that's just called cross-disciplinary competencies. It's on the um, top uh, bar and you can click on that and it gives a history and the methodology of how we got there. It then has the four areas, the definition that was agreed upon. I think, you know, besides the first five years of us working on this, that was so impressive to me is that the boards of each one of these organizations endorsed these four. And that took about a year and a half. Um, But once we have them, so an indicator as an example, um, and I'll just go through one uh, evidence-based intervention, would be um, demonstrates knowledge of typical and atypical child development, including risk factors factors for development throughout the intervention process. Now, that is just an indicator because a a personnel prep program or a a professional development program would probably break that down. We also on the ECPC website have specific resources for how you can teach each one of these. We have over 500 short videos. We have um, PowerPoints. Um, We have activities that really spread these out, and they're under something called curriculum modules. We have lots of videos uh, that are longer, so you really can show them and use them. But um, another indicator is identifies and includes uh, evidence-based practices on the intervention plan, which would be the IEP, IFSP if you're in schools or early intervention. And what that just means is that any practitioner should be able to defend what's going on to that plan as this is why we're suggesting this and here's the evidence. And this is where the discipline expertise really comes in because, um, as I'll use OT again, um, I'm a special educator by training. I would not know the literature or the evidence base on OT practice as well as I would know my own. And I don't need to because I'm not an OT, but a licensed OT would know that and be able to bring it to the team and be able to share the practices that work better than others. 
Um, another area on under evidence base is using valid, reliable, non-discriminatory child-focused fo- assessment uh, procedures and instruments. And this is a biggie because some of our assessments are not necessarily non-discriminatory, especially when you're looking at the changing demographics in our country. Um, language can be a barrier. Culture can be a barrier. Where you even live in the country is a barrier. And we want all of our practitioners to acknowledge that they have to look and augment any kind of tool they're using with an authentic assessment through observation and discussion with families. So, you know, each one of these has probably uh, between 10 and 15 indicators. Same with family center, being able to demonstrate listening skills, as an example, uh, with families, being able to help families prioritize what they want. Um, Under professional ethics is knowing the ethical standards of their discipline and are able to share that with other disciplines. Um, And teaming and collaboration is being able to um, manage and even lead an interdisciplinary um, team meeting. And that means being not just respectful, but being aware of what different team members bring. So um, it it really is a nice outline of what we would like this field uh, to represent when we talk about who's providing practices. Absolutely. The resources are are truly amazing. I am a young practitioner. I I work in outpatient pediatrics and I feel as a a younger practitioner, I've spent so much of my time and effort into um, individual uh, types of approaches for for my patients and and their families um, that I really don't have knowledge or expertise related to um, these types of systems orientations. Um, But looking at the website, uh, exploring the cross-disciplinary user guide, um, some of the, you know, documents and and links and attachments that are there on the website um, that really kind of provided me with an idea of how to grow my scope, how to improve my practice, how to take actionable steps to start practicing more interdisciplinary um, and what I need to do personally to up my knowledge and expertise to be able to grow my scope um, and help the kids that I do treat in a, a more meaningful and and lasting way. Um, so I, I really love all the resources included there. Could you share with us a, a case study of how practicing one of these competencies um, leads to positive outcomes for patients and their families? Well, I think what it does, all of these resources, because we have each one of our practice areas from leadership to building a CSPD to cross-disciplinary, each one of these really asks who's ever using them, whether it's going to be a, a state leader or whether it's going to be a higher ed faculty or whether it's going to be somebody who's providing professional development to help facilitate critical thinking. So that each of these case studies and many of our case studies are also um, represent different linguistic, cultural, racial, and ethnic backgrounds of families that we're serving, um, provides information. And then, um, especially on the cross-disciplinary, we have a right-hand and a left-hand column. And the right-hand gives gives a little bit of the story and the left-hand column provides very specific um, thought questions, but more importantly, references that you can hot link on, that you click on, and will bring you to something that gives you background information to help serve this family. Um, In classes that I teach, um, we use them, and the good news about them is that um, they're pretty foolproof, meaning um, we believe in errorless learning, so we don't want people to be guessing at what's the right way, because quite frankly, it's very different depending on the background of the family and their values. And so we provide lots of prompts so people can use that and think about the next time they see a family. And we're not trying to do cookie cutter, like every family who fits this bucket needs to be treated this way. We're trying to show the diversity of different ways that families may respond to the interventions you're doing in birth to three and teachers. Because one of the issues that we know at the preschool level is teaching teachers and related service personnel to collaborate together in a specific setting, such as an early childhood classroom, Head Start, child care, or if you're school-based pre-K, and how you are able to bring some of this very specific practices into a classroom 
um, wherever it may be with typical kids um, and then the child who's receiving services so that you're able to, again, critically think what's the best way to provide this service to this child that enhances not just acquisition, but generalization and maintenance of the skills I'm trying to teach. I love that. That's it's such a wonderful framework, and that emphasis on on critical thinking um, to provide high quality care is is so important. It seems like these resources can really be applied at all levels or at all aspects of, or points across the care continuum um, by practitioners, policymakers. Um, Susan, I want to ask you: How do you think? occupational therapy educators could use these competencies and and related materials to prepare students to work in early intervention and early childhood settings. I think just as Mary Beth was saying, right, with regards to how they can be used um, with educators is the same way that we could use them in OT and OTA education. I think that there's so many that wealth of resources that you've already described, but again, like really practical case examples of what these behavioral indicators for these four competencies look like. Um, There's one case, for example, of um, Antonia that's posted on the ECPC website. Um, about an 18-month-old and her IFSP development. And so, you know, that would be a really great case if I was trying to um, help students to understand what family-centered practice meant versus just client-centered practice, which I know is sometimes something that um, new practitioners uh, have a hard time sort of conceptualizing. What does it mean to bring all those people in? So that wouldn't be one way that I would use it. I also think for practitioners, though, that these competencies and those behavioral indicators can be a real good um, strategy to check those out to see if it's this is a practice setting that you're interested in working in or if, you, if you've already got those skills. Like, you know, as you were mentioning, Matt, that's something that you could be looking at to see, you know, if there are areas that you'd like to increase or improve your skills on. Um, so I think that they could be used really across the board at all, all times of development. I love that. And Mary Beth, are there there tips or, or guidelines, recommendations that you would give the practitioners um, who are exploring these resources for the first time? What would you tell them about how you hope they're they're using these competencies and and maybe approaching the application of of them to their own practice? Well, probably the first thing I would do is you can't skim through it. There's a lot of stuff on that website. Um, And, you know, on the front page, you can scroll down and just click the audience that you find yourself in, such as practitioners, and it'll bring you a number of things. But um, I would hope that um, people would devote enough time to look at everything because it's fairly clearly labeled, but you have to look at it to see how it applies to you. And uh, under curriculum modules, there's a lot of information, and that's uh, as well as under the cross-disciplinary but the video library, you know, is is um, referenced by what the topic is, how long it is. So you really can go through if I want to see something on authentic assessment. And it's, it's also outlined by different topical areas. But it really, we hope, you know, my dream from a, years ago was that we would have the Khan Academy for Early Childhood Intervention, um, which is so successful, I would tell people who've never heard of Khan Academy that, you know, now uh, basically SAT prep is all done through Khan Academy. And they're very short videos. Sometimes they're longer on topical areas. And for the SAT prep, it's now all SAT oriented high school curriculum. But there's all other kinds of things you can do. And it's a click and you get to see it. So we're hoping that this website um, serves that um, purpose so that you as a practitioner could say, I just met a, a challenging family to me. And it might not be to somebody else, but to me, I know that I need to learn some background um, about different ways I can provide services. So I think that what we want is, as I said, not just the website bring critical thinking, but to help all of our practitioners use that as part of their own self-efficacy. You know, there is going to be something new every day that we probably all encounter that we wish we knew better how to deal with. And this, we hope the website can serve that. It's like, let me look this up and then let me think it through. As I said, we don't, you know, want people to just say, well, here's on the website and I'm going to do it exactly this way. But what it should give you is some thought processes, some questions for yourself, and some ways that you can 
decide a plan of action, um, whether it be, as I said before, for a state in planning a CSPD, or whether it be for a higher ed faculty trying to put together a course syllabus, um, or whether it be lead- people looking at leadership, or most important to us, the practitioner who is going to have a diversity um, of families, both in terms of background and also child characteristics um, to really focus on. I love that. The responsibility to apply these principles and competencies ultimately lies on the practitioner, but these resources are developed and and presented in in such a way that it really facilitates and stimulates, as you've mentioned, the critical thinking and creativity of practitioners to be able to apply them to practice. Um, Are are there any additional resources uh, that you'd like to share with our listeners who want to learn more about your work and the cross-disciplinary competencies specifically? Um, We did have an article published in Infants and Young Children, and of course, I don't have the reference off the top of my head, but I can send it, which really, it's not new. It has all the same information is up. Actually, the article is probably right on our website, but that gives people who are more academically oriented, mainly faculty probably, kind of the background of the methodology of how we got there, if anybody, you know, wants to just be assured um, of how it was um, done. Um, but I think everything there, and actually we have a meeting in a couple of weeks and we'll be looking with our cross-disciplinary partners on what's next. What else does the field need? I think the thing I would say is that, um, we're always open for suggestions. We put this website together for the field. Um, it's not coming top down. It's not saying we want to have this, <clears throat> that, or the other. We go out to the field. As I said, we meet with a number of different um, groups of constituents, including higher ed faculty, because we've been working with a different group. We have cohorts of faculty, uh, families. We have a family cohort and we have family members on our team and um, our higher, uh, higher ed, I already mentioned, but we're also having our state leaders are part of a feedback loop with us. So we always go out to them to say, you know, what's next? What else do you need? And then they get to review anything before anything gets up on that website. It gets reviewed by the constituents who it is targeted for. So we know that it's somewhat foolproof or at least, you know, has passed muster of a number of people who have given input and and suggestions if they want changes. Absolutely. I, I love that the um, website itself and all the resources are, are constantly being added to and, and amped up um, in, in a way. Um, Mary Beth, thank you so much for everything you've uh, shared with us today. And I would just want to close with the fact that we have started a new initiative with our cross-disciplinary partners. And it really, it's the Early Childhood Intervention Personnel Center. So we inserted intervention to, again, designate we're working specifically with young children with disabilities and their families. But it's a center for equity. And our uh, task is really to increase uh, the capacity of institutions of higher ed and professional organization association to prepare a racially, ethnically, culturally, and linguistically diverse generation of professionals who is then going to advance equity in early childhood. So we have started with what's defined, let's define equity. And we're using IDEA and we're using the components of early childhood intervention. For example, right now we're doing listening sessions across the country. Tell us what uh, entry into the system or screening should look like if it was equitable for each and every family and child. Tell us what assessment should look like. From there, we will be developing materials Um, that will target uh, families with different backgrounds and children with a diversity of learning needs. But we're also working with states to recruit from the earliest point possible, and middle school is not too early, uh, a next generation of professionals who represent the diversity of who we're serving in early childhood intervention. It's it's truly heartbreaking to consider how children who qualify and could benefit from these types of services uh, are are missed. Um, but also very encouraging that um, this program is being developed to to build that capacity and and to um, create a, a larger safety net to make sure that that no children are being missed when they should be um, re- being assessed, being screened, and and receiving the the type of care that they need to to really live their life to the fullest. 
Yeah, it really is a match, making sure that we are individualizing to each family and their, um, not just background, but their priorities and um, what they would like and how they would like it. Um, you know, we have the good news is that IDEA has been around for 47 years. It's my first year teaching uh, in seven. I started in 76 this spring. And um, the bad news is we've kind of gotten into a one size fits all model at some at the state level sometimes, not all the time. And yet we know our country has diversified a lot in almost 50 years. And um, we have different types of families, different kinds compositions of families, and a lot of diversity of family values that we need to be respectful towards and be able to help them help their children. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love that. Um, Mary Beth, we end each show with the golden nugget segment. Susan's uh, given us a golden nugget before, so we're asking her to, to give us a, a second. Um, but this question is for you both. If there was one piece of advice um, or a piece of knowledge that you would share with our listeners, what, you, what would you say? Well, for me, Matt, I would say that when we're, we're doing work with in early intervention with children's and children and families, that it's so important to remember that we're entering into their home and, and their space and that none of this work is done alone. Um, we need uh, input um, from all sorts of providers and professionals to be able to do uh, the best that we can for children and their families. I couldn't say it better, Susan. I think that that's absolutely wonderful. I always give a a little bit of a nugget to people who are coming into the field and staying in the field. Um, You should only be doing this work if it gets you out of bed in the morning and you're excited because it's hard work, it's complicated work, and families deserve the best practitioners who, again, to me, are those who really love the work and have fun with it. So, um, you know, we, we love our practitioners. They're all working so hard. Um, but I always tell people, just make sure this is your passion because um, it's going to demand a lot of you. I love that. Uh, this has been uh, such an informational and encouraging interview. I, I love those nuggets. Uh, thank you so much for sharing your time and, and uh, all of your knowledge and expertise with us today. Thank you very much for having this and highlighting some of the work that we're doing with AOTA. Yeah, it's my pleasure. We'll have to do it again sometime. Please, definitely. Thanks for listening to Everyday Evidence. Tune in next time for more evidence-based practice insights and applications. 